Hello and welcome to the Lancet Public Health Podcast in conversation with. It's February 2023 and I'm Cahill McQuillan. In this episode, we'll be discussing a longitudinal survey of young adults in Britain, which looked at changes in the severity of problem gambling and its relationship with subsequent suicide attempts. I'm delighted to be joined here today by the lead author on the paper, Dr. Heather Wordle from the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Glasgow. Hi, Heather. Thanks very much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good, I'm good. I'm not too bad. So just to get started, uh, could you please begin by telling me a bit about your study and, and what your overall findings were? Sure. So what we did was we had a longitudinal study of 1,941 young adults who were living in Britain, and they were aged between 16 and 24. And we first interviewed them back in the summer of 2019, and we went back and re-interviewed them again in 2020. And what we were doing was to look to see how changes in gambling behaviour in that intervening period was related to suicide attempts that they had reported at the second time that we interviewed them. And what we found was that those who reported experiencing increasing difficulties with their gambling had odds of attempting suicides at wave two that were 2.4, sorry, 2.74 times higher than those whose gambling behaviours had stayed the same. So, like you said, you, you conducted a cross-section analysis on this same set of participants two years ago. Now in your study, you were able to look at suicide attempts over time, but in comparison with your previous work, did any of the results in this um, recent study surprise you? Yeah, they did surprise us because in our prior study, what we'd looked at was those who had said that they were experiencing the most severe forms of gambling harm. So those who were categorised as experiencing problem gambling, and then that's the association of that with suicide attempts. And what that study found was that young men were nine times more likely to attempt suicide and young women were four times more likely to attempt suicide. And I think what we thought was we might see a sort of a similar association here, that your kind of your prior problematic gambling status might then predict your subsequent suicide attempts. But actually what we found was a much more dynamic association. Um, I mean, and we know that gambling behaviour is dynamic, but what we actually found was that anyone experiencing an increase in difficulties then had an increased risk of suicide attempts. And what was really important about that was that this was irrespective of people's starting status. So it wasn't just that this association is limited to those who are on the most severe end of the spectrum. It was anybody who was having even, a, it could even be a sort of a relatively marginal increase in the difficulties they're experiencing with gambling. So it was any escalation along the continuum of risk that was then associated with suicide attempts. Um, and that's really important and I think the reason this is so important is that it really shows that you have to think about risk on this continuum. You can't just think about a the idea of, well, there's a few people who are you know, perhaps disordered in some way and that they're very different from the rest of us who are all gamble and there's no problem. You've really got to consider the full continuum of behaviours, that full continuum of risk. Um, and how that is then associated with something as severe as attempted suicide. 
So in the past, you've noted that gambling problems have been amplified and accelerated by digital spaces and technological infrastructures that facilitate rapid payment purchases online. Could you, could you please elaborate on the impact that online gambling has had in recent years? Sure. I mean, I think we, anyone who is of, of an age where they can remember um, prior to sort of 2005, will know that the gambling landscape has changed considerably, certainly in Britain, um, in, in that period. I mean, prior to that point, you know, we didn't really have the proliferation of online gambling because obviously it's only just you know relatively recently developed. But we also didn't have the same level of advertising and marketing that we have for gambling. So you've got this kind of combination of these new products that are available 24-7 that are then really highly promoted um, and marketed and advertised to people. And you have a whole cohort, particularly in our study, you've got a whole cohort of young people who grow up knowing no difference. You know, for them, this is this is their normal. So you do have this very sort of different experience for this cohort of youth, I think. But it's not just the gambling, um, so the online gambling, the online sports betting, the in-play betting that we might all have seen. It's also the way that gambling has been integrated into other activities like digital games, for example. So we we can see how there's this whole kind of ecosystem of gambling and gambling-like activities um, now embedded into uh, things like video games. So there's been a lot of talk about loot boxes would be an example there, but also skin betting. Um, and we also see in, in other research that actually skin betting is one of the things that's really highly associated also with problematic gambling severity. And skin betting, for those who don't know, is essentially you take digital items that you win within games and you use that as collateral to bet on external websites. So it's a really different look and feel and just, I mean, a really different environment for some of these young people who are really embedded in these uh, in these digital games. And out of interest, uh, the skin batting is, is a really interesting one. Have, have any studies looked at an association between maybe younger people that began doing batting through things like games and then maybe does that lead to an increased likelihood of gambling, sports betting at a later stage? Uh, is there, has that been locked into at all? I mean, it would be amazing if we had that kind of level of evidence. At the minute, a lot of it is kind of based on cross-sectional association. Um, and so we haven't had that kind of continuity. But it's sort of, it feels intuitive that that might be a reasonable mechanism. But it is absolutely something that we ought to be thinking about in a lot more detail. Yeah. As you say, I suppose it's it's relatively recent, so it'll probably take a while before we have kind of concrete evidence, but it's definitely, yeah, an interesting thing to look at in the future. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. This this landscape is changing so quickly. As a research community, you're always playing catch up um, because 10 years ago, we weren't talking about skin betting or loot boxes. 10 years ago, we were talking about social casino. Then... That, and that was the big thing that everyone was concerned about. And then that sort of dissipated in terms of interest. And now we're on to the next big things. Um, so it's both exciting, challenging and frustrating. Absolutely. Uh, 
That actually leads very well into my my next question. So you said before that it's it's time for major investment and an overhaul of UK gambling laws to alleviate the growing economic burden of uh, gambling on society. What do you think gambling reform should look like? Oh, big question. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, there, there are lots of things I could say here. Um, I'm going I'm to start with probably picking up on the previous point, which is about the kind of ecosystem for investment in both prevention and treatment of gambling. I mean, we've just, as a gambling researcher who's worked in this field for a long time, you know, we have really lagged behind in terms of both parity of esteem, parity of recognition and parity of funding to other public health areas. And that has a real impact because it impacts on the capacity you have within the research community to, you know, look into these emerging things and to provide that evidence base also has a real impact on the kind of trust and confidence that people have in the treatment systems, for example. So we've seen relatively recently the NHS come out and say that they're no longer taking funding from um, an organisation called uh, GambleAware for their, for their treatment provision. So the other thing that I think is really important in this is also is just about quantum of funding, you know, making sure that we have enough people to be able to provide that treatment, enough people to be able to look at the good solutions. So that would be one aspect. I think also for me, there needs to be a much more kind of radical overhaul of what the industry does, much tighter regulation, um, regulating the products, regulating their marketing, regulating their advertising, you know, possibly cracking down on that in in a lot of um in a lot of detail. And actually, you know, this whole shift from focusing on the individuals as the people who provide the solutions to the harms that they experience and actually looking at corporate responsibility. You know, what is the role of the industry here and what role do they play in determining the harms and actually how do they need to be regulated much more strictly to actually bear the responsibility because they produce they produce the products and they 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 are in control of the practices that generate the harms so there needs to be much more focus on that so in 2018, the US Supreme Court overturned the federal ban on sports betting, allowing state governments to set their own policies on gambling. So sports betting is now legal in 36 US states and over $725 million was spent on sports betting ads there in 2021 alone. So, so this issue is definitely not confined to the UK. What countries around the world have recognized gambling as a public health issue and, and responded accordingly? It's a really interesting question because the you know, internationally the response is really varied, and leading on leading on from what I just said, you know, actually the the sort of dominant paradigm is still to focus on the individual, that kind of individual responsibility, responsible gambling um, mantra for solutions. So things like you know, making sure you have self-exclusion in place, providing information to consumers, but actually getting you know, the idea is is that you get consumers to take responsibility for their behaviours, and that's really really common still internationally. There's not that many countries that have really taken a more holistic 
public health-based approach where they look at the entire system um, and they particularly place focus on, as I said earlier, what companies, what corporations are doing and the practices that they need to stop to be able to protect public health. There are kind of pockets of good examples. So um, in New Zealand, for example, they at least have responsibility for gambling that's held within uh, their Ministry of Health. They do get the industry to provide additional funds into government specifically for um, treatment and research. But they, they're not perfect. They then redistribute some of those funds out to communities, which then creates this kind of potentially odd reliance of from communities on gambling for revenues. So it's you get these complicated um, complicated systems. So I think there is you know there is a real need for us to really carefully consider you know, what does good practice look like in this area. Oh, it's interesting um, talking about people kind of relying on some of the revenue that has been made from um, from gambling. I know that when I was just researching for this podcast, um, looking at the US and the kind of the results that have come uh, out since they've legalized gambling or allowed states to, to make that decision themselves. Most of the articles seem to focus on the amount of tax revenue that was being made and how beneficial this was for the states. And it was actually partially difficult to find maybe some of the negative consequences of um, of the states kind of uh, legalizing uh, sports gambling, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So if you're looking at kind of the dominant framing for why states are legalizing gambling it is or nearly always because they want to boost revenues to the state coffers i mean so for example if you take somewhere like illinois which is one of the example i've been looking at you know they actually they're really explicit in their gambling act they say you know that we are the reason we are doing this is to boost revenues for tourism education health infrastructure you know there is a whole long list and then they've built into their legislation exactly where all the money is going to be distributed and to, and to what fraction. And when you start putting it together and actually look at it, there is, there is no element of public life in Illinois that will not be in receipt of um, gambling revenues, including the payment of public sector pensions. Not, not to go back on myself there, but you talked uh, a lot about how so many kind of country policies around gambling are essentially putting a responsibility on the individual themselves. Out of interest, have studies found how effective these approaches are or, you know, what have studies kind of said about this approach? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the efficacy of these things are... You know, it's 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 pretty low, and and some of the things are you know good practice. It is good practice to have a facility for people to be able to exclude themselves from forms of gambling, but that shouldn't be your the pillar of your prevention approach. I mean, by that point, this it is too late. What tends to happen in terms of prevention approaches is that they. Uh, encourage like voluntary limit setting or voluntary deposit settings or the kind of tools that um, can that, that people can use to help help them control themselves, but yeah, they are not particularly effective. Well, certainly when they're voluntary, people don't often use them. 
Um, they're e easy to circumnavigate. And again, it doesn't take into account all the other influences that are being put to place on a person. In some circumstances, you know, when they're, when they're gambling, to keep gambling and keep gambling more. I know um, I was reading that, that many of um, kind of like uh, different gambling sites, if you remember, and essentially if the algorithm kind of detects that you've reduced the amount of gambling that you've been doing or even, you know, kind of fallen out of it entirely, that it will kind of specify you to then be targeted with emails that might um, be like we... We, we've placed uh, £50 in your account free of, uh, free of charge, you know, to, to place a bet and, and these kind of incentives to get people who are potentially trying to take responsibility or, or uh, trying to withdraw themselves from gambling. So these are the kind of outside influences that uh, are taking place that I guess to, to, in many cases are not regulated by, by kind of government policies. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, and that's I mean, that's a brilliant summary of of some of the practices that we do know that happens. And there's that real tension because some of the approaches that regulators are taking are trying to say to um industry, look, you must be responsible for identifying those people at risk. But in in what our evidence tends to show is it it's the people who are at greater risk who are the most profitable. So you're then relying on the industry to police itself to um, take action for some of its most profitable members. Um, and then you know, I think we have to ask questions about, you know, really, is that the most appropriate policy response here? Yeah, no, absolutely. So just on to my, my final question. You're, you're currently leading the upcoming Lancet Public Health Commission on Gambling. Uh, could, you pre could you briefly explain what you'll be discussing at it and, and what your commission hopes to achieve? Yeah, sure. Um, so with the Lancet Public Health Commission on Gambling, I think it's really important that we say, you know, we are starting from a really pragmatic viewpoint here. Commercial gambling is growing exponentially and it's here to stay. You know, it, the industry is not going away and that is something, you know, that is a fact of life that we need to think about and recognise. And the industry is also globalising at a really rapid rate. So what this gives rise to is a whole series of critical questions about how in this context, with this growth of the global industry, do you actually best regulate it in the public interest? How do you actually address these challenges of globalisation, especially when the industry is increasingly online. And then there are all sorts of questions that related to that in terms of the data infrastructure that the industry has and how it uses and mobilises that data to promote and provide its products. And really what, what we're thinking about is, well, what kinds of international action and cooperation is needed to protect people from potential harms and you know we acknowledge these are really big questions um, and we'll be doing our very best to discuss them and to look at a range of you know potential solutions and actions but we should see the the Lancet Public Health Commission on gambling as really just the start of that process you know, ultimately we'd really like it to be the jumping off point for increase concerted international collaboration to really think about and then do 
the best regulation of gambling in the public interest? Well, um, sounds really interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it when it's uh, when it's published. Um, that's uh, that's all of the questions I have for you. Thanks so much, Heather, for taking the time to speak with us. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. No, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. You can read Dr. Wardle's research online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Dr. Wardle and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With, The Lancet Public Health, wherever you usually get your podcasts.